Back in the 1880s, the Eiffel Tower was constructed in, in France. And I know this is hard for us to comprehend, but apparently the amount of metal and materials that went into this tower totaled over 10,000 tons. I'm not even sure what that would look like, but that's a lot of metal. And of course, metal rusts, so the, the government has to continue to keep the tower up and paint it and so forth. Well, several decades went by, and in 1925, the government published uh, an article in the local newspaper that basically said, this thing's costing us too much money, and they were not even sure if they were going to keep it or not. And they were kind of going back and forth. So an individual by the name of Victor Lustig read about this opportunity, and he was a con man, so he called together a bunch of scrap dealers in Paris, and he pretended that he was a government official. Maybe you've heard of this story, but he pretended that he was a government official. And he presented to these scrap dealers, this is going to be like the opportunity of a lifetime. You can buy this tower for super cheap. You have to bid on it, of course. You can buy this tower for super cheap. You'll be able to tear it down and salvage the metal and make all kinds of profit off of this. And as he was doing this presentation in this posh hotel, he spotted a a man in the back who was a local scrap dealer that was kind of maybe feeling a little pushed aside. He was a bit vulnerable. He wanted to kind of make it big in in the scrap world. So he approached him later on and he said, actually, if you pay me a, a bribe, I'll make sure you get the contract. So this poor soul ended up paying the bribe and paying a significant sum toward the tower And then Victor ended up skipping town. Well, this guy was so embarrassed by it, he never even reported it to the police. So Victor came back to France about a year later and tried to pull off the exact same scam again. But this time he was run out of town by the police. Can you imagine that? We have to be careful of con men. There's a lot of con men in the world, a lot of scammers, a lot of robocallers that want your money, that want your credit card number, that want to take you down. A lot of con men, but there's also con men and scammers in the church or in and among the people of God. And in 1 John chapter 4, the writer is basically warning the people of God, don't be duped by theological con artists and scammers. They're out there. They're out there. Don't be duped by theological con artists, and scammers. It's hard because many of them believe their own lies. Some of them don't believe what they're saying. They're just flat out trying to rip you off. But others of them actually believe your own lies. And so what we're going to learn today in God's word is that the Bible commands us to test the spirits, which is another way of saying to be careful and what we believe. As I preach today, you have to be careful to discern whether or not what I'm saying is aligned with God's word. So as I anchor my sermon, of course, in God's word, the chances of accuracy goes up. But if I start making things up or I start diverging from what God has said, then we might have a problem on our hands. So as Again, as a church, the Bible commands us to test the spirits, to be careful 
about what we are likely to believe. So as we prepare to dissect the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4, let's just take a moment to pray and ask that the Lord would give us the kind of discernment that we all need. So Father God, here we are. We love you. We care for you. And we trust that as we've worshipped you today, that we've done it in an authentic way and that you've been pleased and honored by the things we've sang, by the attitudes of our hearts. And we pray, Lord God, that we would open ourselves up at this time to hear from you. We want to be accurate in our beliefs. We don't want to buy into lies. We don't want to be duped. We don't want to be scammed. We don't want to be false teachers ourselves. So, Father, uh, warn us as you need to encourage us, inform us, and help us to be a people that walk firmly in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you three lessons from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 that help us to avoid being conned. And the first one is this. Be a critical thinker in the area of Christian theology. Be a critical thinker in the area of Christian theology and doctrine. The first verse reads, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What's amazing about this is this was just several decades after Jesus Christ had departed and gone to heaven. And just in those few decades, John was able to say to the church already, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just in a few decades. Now think about how many more decades, in fact, centuries, in fact, a couple millennia have gone by since this letter was first delivered to the early believers. There are boatloads of false teachers that have gone out into the world. And so it's all the more important for people living in 2020 to be careful, to be discriminate, to be thoughtful about what we believe. Belief, we know, is foundational to faith. Faith is not some airy-fairy, sentimental, emotionally driven decision that's not rooted in anything real, anything genuine. God has revealed certain things to us through the word of God. We believe them and we put our faith in them. But did you know that belief can also become toxic if you're not believing in the right things. You could say, well, I really believe it. I'm absolutely convinced. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You might have believed in a lie. I can think of different things I used to believe that I no longer believe. Not so much when it comes to the Bible, but just things about life in general or facts that I thought were true that I discovered weren't actually facts. There's a lot of Beliefs that people can have that can become toxic. Just think about the things you believe and the implications that flow from the things you believe. We can just talk about several of them. For example, if you believe that riches 
will ultimately satisfy you. And so you spend your life pursuing wealth. At some point, you're going to discover that's a lie. Riches aren't innately a bad thing, but riches don't have the capacity to ultimately satisfy you. Maybe you live your life thinking everybody hates me, and it's not true. People love you. But you believe everybody hates you. That's going to affect what? Your relationships. Your ability to receive a compliment. Your ability to receive constructive criticism. What you believe affects your relationships. If you believe there are many gods, and you go around worshiping many gods, well, that's going to affect your ability to connect with the true and living God. In fact, he will say, no, I'm not interested. I'm not going to share my glory with other gods. You might think, you know, I come to church, but I have nothing to offer in ministry. You may be ignorant to the biblical teaching on spiritual gifts that God has given every true believer spiritual gifts that are to be used to edify the body of Christ. If you're not aware of that, if you're not knowledgeable of that, or you've denied that, or you don't believe that to be true, that's going to affect your capacity to honor God with your life. If you believe this lie, so common in the world today, love is love, whatever that means, you might end up loving the wrong thing or engaging in the wrong sexual activities. Or if you believe that Jesus isn't God, is that just, is that a minor issue? Is that a major issue? If you believe that Jesus isn't God, that affects our whole view of salvation and the work of Christ and how we worship God and how we approach God and how we pray. So these are just illustrations I'm providing for you this morning to illustrate this fundamental fact that beliefs matter. Beliefs affect our worship, our relationships, our outlook on life, where we invest our time, talents, and treasures. Well, in this passage, we're going to see a specific area of belief that the early church is being warned about. But before we get there, the broad statement of verse 1 is, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You know what's interesting about living in our day and age is the, just the sheer access that we have to biblical and theological teaching. It's, it's unbelievable. If you think about it, we, see, we, we grew up in this, so we're kind of used to it. But we actually live at a very abnormal, not saying bad, but abnormal time in history where we receive truth claims through sermons. And I know I'm not, even if I'm your pastor, I'm not the only preacher most of you listen to during the week. Some of you probably listen to 10, 12 podcasts or other online sermons in a typical week. I know many people do. So we have that dynamic. Many different voices speaking into your head. We read tweets or we watch videos or we read Christian books or we view Christian movies and we're constantly being inundated with information that is doctrinal in its origin. And as we listen to these different sermons or read these different books or watch these different videos or even listen to these different songs, we cannot afford to become careless 
and overly trusting of what we're hearing. Just because it sounds inspired, just because the preacher is compelling and urgent and seems to believe what he's saying, doesn't mean it's necessarily true. And then, of course, we have life circumstances, and we all have different personalities in the room today, but let's say you are in a situation in your life where you're going through a lot of pain. You know, maybe life hasn't been all that fun for you. You've lost relationships. You've lost opportunities. You've lost your health. You've lost some loved ones. You're in pain. Well, when we are in pain... All of us desire to fix that pain. And if you're anything like me, you want to fix it as fast as possible. We believe that perseverance and patience is a virtue. But how many of us are going through a week saying, oh, yeah, I love to persevere. I, I, lo- I love to be patient. No, we, we want our problems to be solved now. But if we're in pain, it's easy to look for simple solutions, is it not? And if someone's like, here, it's three steps, it'll fix your problem. I'd say, oh, we're going to believe that. Or quick promises or flashy solutions. And if these things fail to alleviate our pain, what happens? We We can be destroyed in our faith. So we have to be careful about believing something because it seems to be a band aid or a fix to some pain that we just desperately want to offload. Or for highly social. For highly social. And the primary reason, if we're honest, why we go to the church we go to is because that's where our friends are. It, it, it's got a good vibe to it. There's a lot of people my age. Well, if your bottom line for picking the church that you go to is the social aspect What if false teaching starts to be taught? What if false doctrine starts to be spewed? It's like, well, I can't leave. These are where my friends are. And like the frog in the kettle, we just get used to it, and it becomes normal. We start to believe it. It starts to affect us negatively. Or maybe we're the kind of people that love history, and so we we resist change. And perhaps we've been hearing something taught to us since the time we were young, and it's not true, and kind of know it. But we don't want to walk away from it because we love history, and we resist change, and this is the way it's always been in our denomination or in our church or in our family. Or, this is increasingly becoming a problem in our world today, most people, let's be honest, if not all of us, have spent many more cumulative hours in secularized, godless educational institutions than we have studying this book. And we earn degrees in mathematics or engineering or sociology or psychology or social work or nursing or English or history. And all of these disciplines are taught to us from a secularized, godless worldview. Do you think that there's not going to be some leakage there? Like You don't have the capacity to necessarily process 
every single thing you've ever heard. And it might be true that you're a Christian, but actually your worldview is more of a secularized worldview than a biblical worldview. And so you might even read something in the Bible, but you resist it because you're so steeped in your secularized worldview. So you resist truth. Well, to all of this, the Bible says, test. Does it not say that in the text? It says test. So your personality, your history might stand in the way, your your education might stand in the way, your emotions might stand in the way, your social circles might stand in the way, but into all of that, God's like, I want you to test the spirits. Test means investigate the source of the supposed word from God, the doctrinal claim, the theological statement that you've heard. Because there are, present tense, many false prophets. So we can't drop our guard, church. We can't say, well, the church dealt with the heretics 150, 200 years ago. No. Every generation has its own false teachers. The language of the text also is interesting. It says they've gone out, meaning they've spread far and wide. They could be anywhere. They could be here. We have to test the spirits. We have to filter what we've heard. When you turn on your tap in the city of Windsor, you put your glass under the tap and you drink the water. Do you know where the water's coming from? The Detroit River. But we wouldn't feel comfortable going down to the Detroit River with a glass and just scooping her up, especially in the heat of July, right? Glug, 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 now. No, we wouldn't want to do that. So how is it that we're comfortable drinking water from the Detroit River when it comes out of our tap? Because something happened between the river and our faucet. It was filtered. It went through a series of processes and then it was chlorinated so the contaminants, the debris, the yuckiness was taken out of it. We need a filter as well. Between our ears and our brains. We're going to hear a lot of things taught. We're going to receive a lot of truth claims. We can't just say, oh, well, sounds right. And we need to filter it. And what is the filter God has given to us to separate that which is true from that which is false? It's this book. So it's necessary then for us to understand the basics minimally of this book. How do we do that? We need to test doctrinal claims Against scripture. Now I understand that when 1 John was written, the word of God had not yet been canonized, meaning affirmed and wrapped up in one book. They had the Old Testament. Many of the New Testament books had been written. I don't know how many of those books this first century audience had access to. I don't know. None of us know that. But they did have the words from the apostles and the prophets to guide them and direct them. We now are in a place where we have a redemptive historical advantage. 
over the first century believers because we now have a canonized scripture. It's all finished. It's tied up. It even has a little bookmark in it. We have the Bible. It's written in our language. 99.9% of us are literate. We can read it. We have the advantage of Christian orthodoxy. We've had 2,000 years of discernment, fighting to rely on, to make sure that what we're reading and hearing is true. Now, previous to this in 1 John, the audience had also been exposed to different tests. There was truth tests in different areas to test truth claims for different doctrinal matters. You remember that there were several moral tests where they're asked to really evaluate their righteousness. This is another doctrinal test, and it relates specifically to Jesus Christ. It's a Christological test. It's basically asking us, do we have the proper notion of who Jesus is? You don't want to get this one wrong. So at verse 2 and verse 3, we read, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Someone's preaching, someone's teaching, someone's writing, someone's tweeting. How do I know that what they're saying is true? This is one core. It's not the only test, but it's one core test. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ... Now, by the way, as I've taught earlier, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ means anointed one or Messiah, but really what it is, is it's a claim to deity. So the word doesn't mean God, but it's a claim to deity. So there's a couple things here. It's assumed that one that would acknowledge, one would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God. That's even more explicit a couple chapters earlier in the book. But then there's another thing that's added to this. One who acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So this is a reference to the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So there's a Christological test that we need to filter sermons through, the books we read through, the podcasts we listen to through. And the Christological test is, do you affirm both the deity, meaning the Godhood, and the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is something that Orthodox believers, Bible-believing believers, have taught for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not even really a denominational thing. Protestants believe this. Roman Catholics believe this. The Eastern Orthodox Church believes this. This is not something that's reserved for some little sect of Christianity. This is basic, foundational, Christian orthodoxy. That Jesus Christ is both fully God 
and fully man. But every once in a while, even after 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy, you might hear someone question this or challenge this. Maybe in your own mind, I could ask you this question. Can you think of quote-unquote Christians who deny either the deity or the full humanity of Jesus Christ? Every once in a while, those ancient heresies just kind of pop back up in a new form, with a new name, a new movement starts, and they're essentially challenging the same old, same old. If you can't think, by the way, of any teachers that have ever taught this, maybe it's because you're absolutely brand new to Christianity and you haven't studied far and wide, or maybe because you're being duped by it. We have some famous preachers that get airtime that question the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, when you're going to a church, some of you might be new to this church, or you're just kind of visiting, you live in another city or whatnot, every once in a while, circumstances are such that people leave churches, and they're looking for a new church. What should I be looking for? What should I be testing? Several things, but this would be a core one. So for starters, let me just make this super simple for you. If you go to a church and the Bible's not preached, it doesn't matter what they say, just leave. There's no future. There's no hope to that church. There's no spiritual fruit that's really going to be born of any significance in a church like that. So ground zero is if the Bible's not being preached, forget it. But if the Bible is being preached, you want to make sure that it's being preached accurately. And so a little more difficult test that requires some discernment is what do they say about Jesus? What are we? We're Christians. What's the root of the word Christian? Christ. So you got to get Christ right. You can't get Christ wrong and be a true Christian And again, the Bible teaches us time and again that Jesus Christ claimed to be both fully God and evidently was fully man. Now, there's some implications to this, by the way. As God, he had the capacity to forgive sins. As God, he was not a descendant of, he did not inherit the sin nature of Adam and therefore was not born in sin. As God, he could do miracles. As God, he was um, worthy of our worship and is worthy of our worship. So that's kind of significant. How about in terms of his humanity? Well, he's born of a virgin. He's fully human, but he doesn't inherit the sin nature. So he's able to die for our sins. He's able to model what it looks like to be a human being. He's tempted as we are. He's tried. He's over- he overcomes it. He dies a very real death and then is resurrected from the dead. So as a perfect human, he's able to be our substitute. So do you see how we're not just into believing the right thing because it's the right thing. Beliefs have implications. And the deity of Christ has implications for my life and worship and my future and my salvation. And the humanity of Christ has implications for my life, my future, my worship, my hope, my salvation. Beliefs matter. 
And if you believe something to be true, but you're like, I'm not really sure why I believe this, but it's true, stick with it. Because in time, God will reveal to you through the proclamation of his word and through your study of his word, why this stuff actually matters. Why biblical preaching, having the right beliefs, actually makes a difference in our lives. You know, Paul was also struggling with this. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he speaks of false teachers that are in and among God's people. And there he writes in verses 13 and following, for such men are false prophets. Then he labels them as this, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But then these words, their end will correspond to their deeds. Now this is a little bit of a, it can be a little bit of a frightening verse because it uses words like deceitful or disguising comes up three times and you're like, man, well, if they're in disguise, how do I know? Like, do I, do, I, do I walk around all afraid and worried all the time? No. You listen to their words, and you ask, do they align with the Bible? Again, we, we have an advantage. A lot of people think, you know, I want, to go back to the, I want to go back to the first century church. I mean, look, it was just great back then. So many wonderful things. Well, obviously, there were some wonderful things going on in the first century, but I like being 2,000 years removed from it. I kind of like it because I have an advantage 2,000 years removed from it. I had the advantage of studying and researching and looking at 2,000 years of the church's fight for orthodoxy. There's not too many fights that come onto the scene anymore that no one's thought about before. We have the advantage of reading the arguments and looking back at the ancient creeds and saying, yeah, this... This idea of Christ, Jesus being the Christ and being in the flesh, this is, this is orthodoxy. We, we, can, we can follow that trail of beliefs right back to the beginning of time. And just every once in a while, heresies pop up that challenge one or the other of those beliefs. So we have the word of God and Christi- uh, uh, centuries of Christian orthodoxy to compare these truth claims to. Remember, if it's new, it's probably not true. Third, we can be encouraged by our greatest resource. So rather than just kind of leaving us with a warning, the writer kind of shifts and he gives us these words of encouragement. You, dear children, speaking to the church, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You've overcome. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, that person has strength of spirit? You heard that language? They have strength of spirit. What do we mean by that? They have a resolve. They have a certain confident poise about them. They have strength of spirit. But what we really need is strength of spirit with a capital S. The strength of the Holy Spirit. 
And in verse 6 of this text, we're told we have that. That spirit is called the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit who lives in us wants to lead us into truth. The Bible says here, we have overcome them. I think there's three things. I don't want to get like super technical here or anything, but I think there's three things that need to be considered from this phrase. We have overcome them is both present. It relates to our position in Christ. Secondly, I I think it's anticipatory. It reminds us of our eschatological hope, our future hope, that in the end, we win because Christ has won. And third, it's invitational. It's inviting us to live a life that overcomes evil. It's, It's all three of those things kind of wrapped up into one. It's a present reality, it's anticipatory, and it's an invitation, all of which are meant to foster in our lives hope. Verse 5 and 6 read, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Who is the them? The false teachers. We are from God. So notice the contrast here. Two different kinds of people. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. That is the apostolic witness. Those that saw Christ were commissioned by Christ, or Christ's apostles to preach and teach the word of God. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth, and the spirit of falsehood. These two verses are a lot about contrast. It's trying to drive into our minds. There's two kinds of people. There's those that follow the words of the world and those that follow the words of the maker of the world, the words of God. Now, the reason why this writer in this context talks like appeals to himself, he doesn't say here, um, Uh, We are from God. Whoever reads the Bible is listening to God. Is because, again, the Bible had not yet been canonized. But the words of these men that the early church were called to listen to would eventually be canonized in the word of God. So we kind of have to make a little bit of an adjustment in our thinking. We're not out looking around for apostles and prophets today to give us a new word. We're looking to the words of the apostles and prophets who wrote these words and ask the early church to listen to these words. Again, two different viewpoints here. The words of the world and the words of God. What is our default? Our default is to listen to the words of the world. That's where we start off. So if you're not a believer, you're not listening to God. You don't have it right. You're listening to the things of the world. I want to share with you five marks of a worldly worldview. Because I want you to be assessing, kind of dissecting your own thought processes and your own potential temptations. I want you to be aware of blind spots in your life. 
that might potentially set you up for believing in falsehood. And five of them come to mind. Five marks of a worldly worldview. The first is situationalism. Situationalism. It's like, well, I believe this, but I don't believe that. But if a situation changes, I'm not going to believe this, and I'm going to believe that. So this is the person that determines what's true or false, right or wrong, based upon their circumstances. And so they're constantly changing. They're not consistent. It's the situation that dictates whether they're going to act this way or that way, whether it's going to benefit them financially or advance them vocationally or affect them relationally or economically. Situationalism. But that's not how we live our lives. The word of God is static and true. And what we need to do is we need to take the word of God and bring it to bear on our circumstances and situations instead of allowing the situations that we're in to dictate to us what we're going to believe or what we aren't going to believe. The second would be emotionalism. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotions, church. It bothers me at times when people sort of try to strip Christianity of its emotions. You're not supposed to, it's, not, it's just all about your brain. No, there's, there's an, we do have an emotional relationship with God. We love God. That's an emotional word. But our emotions, think about this, must always be informed by and harnessed by our minds. Your heart doesn't lead you apart from what you believe to be true. But emotionalism is where you allow yourself to be yanked around by your feelings. So that I, don't, I don't like how that feels. I, I heard it. I know it's true, but I don't like how it feels. I remember years ago, this is going back like 20-something years ago, I was in a counseling session with a person who wasn't obeying God's word, and I took them directly, and I just read for them, this is a Christian, the word of God, and she said, well, I don't like that verse. Well, I mean, up here I understand you might not initially appreciate it, but you don't get to pick what you choose to believe or not believe because, well, I don't like, I don't like how that feels, right? It's offensive to me. No. So be careful about emotionalism. Third, ignorance. Ignorance is where you, you, just, you just haven't taken time to study. <clears throat> you just haven't taken time to read. You just haven't taken time to think about life circumstances. And, and one of the enemies, of course, to being studious and thoughtful and reflective is pragmatism. Well, if it works, we're going to do that. If it doesn't work, we're not going to do it. A certain amount of pragmatism is appropriate. Thinking through what works and what doesn't work is appropriate. But if you bend toward pragmatism and you're just, you're just not a thinking person, you're like, you know, Aaron obviously likes to think. I don't want to think. Or my, you know, my wife likes studying the Bible. It's just not my thing. Too bad. The Bible says, study to show yourself approved. It might not come easy to you. It doesn't always come easy to me. But we need to spend some time getting rid of our ignorance and filling our minds with truth. A fourth mark of a worldly worldview is selfism, where as I live my life, and you kind of got to you know, look inward and monitor your motives, 
Um, I do what benefits me. I go to places that benefit me. I believe that which benefits me. That's selfism. And what's wonderful about God is he calls us out of selfishness into this vertical focus on him. And when we actually get there, guaranteed, you know what we discover? It's actually better to be there. Selfishness might seem to be the solution to being left behind or being left out or not being satisfied. I just need need, need more self-care. I need more self Focus. I need to focus on me. I need to love myself more. I need to appreciate myself more. Those are lies. The more we look to God and we hear, we not only discover how awesome God is, but we discover his view of us in spite of us. That's what lifts people and puts perspective on life. And then the fifth mark of a worldly worldview is just evil. Um, The kind of person that just doesn't love God and doesn't love other people and couldn't care less. You know, every once in a while, we we think about all the evil people of history and who always makes the list of like the top 10. Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin. Our minds just go to those guys. But there are some very wicked, very evil people in the world today. And I know many of you have encountered them. And one of the primary things you see in their lives, just to to show how evil they are, is they hate other people. Couldn't care less about other people. Couldn't care less about you. Evilness, self-centeredness, is a mark of a worldly worldview. Now this, if we're we're saved now, might have been who we once were, but thank God we're not there anymore. God is redeeming us. But it is, these, these characteristics are marks that many lost people have. And we need to weed them out of our lives. Again, the text says, we, beginning of verse six, reference to the, teachings of the apostles. We need to listen to the apostolic witness in order to help us not to drift into error and untruth. So as we prepare to wrap this message up, let me just give you a few final thoughts. Here's the first one. As you leave today, I hope you don't leave fearful. Not the point. But I, I would like to see you leave alert. And there's a difference between the two. Not fearful, but alert. Secondly, I don't want you to become reactionary, but ask questions and make sure you've understood. If you hear something that doesn't sound right, don't be too reactionary. Maybe ask some questions first. Did you understand what was said correctly? Sometimes people hear something or they think they hear something and they didn't hear it. I know as a preacher, a lot of words come out of my mouth. And I can think of many times when someone said later, you said this or you said that. I'm like, I never said that. Oh, you said it. I don't even believe that. I never have. So I know I wouldn't say it. So when you hear something that you 
think might not align with the word of God, ask questions. Because it might be that the person spoke truth and you misunderstood. But if you have, in fact, heard untruth, then the questions that you asked will be helpful. Third, have a conversation and seek to bring correction into someone's life that may be believing or teaching that which isn't true. The first step, if you hear false teaching, is not eh, bring out the axe, cut the person off, never talk to them again. Have a conversation. Try to persuade them to a biblical worldview. Again, we're talking here about macro issues. So macro issues are matters that are core to Christianity. It's not, well, I'm leaving my church because they have a different opinion about what the, you know, the left horn means on the beast in Revelation whatever. That's not worth splitting churches over or leaving churches over. But if someone's attacking core doctrine, like the identity of Jesus Christ or the means of salvation, these core issues, those are reasons to leave churches over. So don't be picky, but be precise in what you believe. Don't be conned, but do maintain your convictions in light of the word of God. And if you do... Not only will you be blessed, but you'll be a blessing to your community of faith and you will bring great honor to God who has spoken words of truth to us that are meant to bring life.